Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. This week we're joined by Luke. Hi, how you doing? Pretty good. I like to start from the very beginning. How did you first get involved with tabletop RPGs? Uh, let me think. So I played D&D once or twice when I was in like middle school. And um, my dad was very much, uh, he was very adamant that D&D and role-playing games and stuff were um, satanic. And uh, I, I, he literally took me aside one time and explained to me that Gary Gygax was an agent of the Antichrist. And that D&D was how he hypnotized people into uh, becoming servants of Satan. <laughs> Uh, so I just told him that I was going over to a friend's house to play board games, and then we played D&D, <laughs> because that was a load of bull honky. From what I understand, I had an older cousin that ended up getting into LARPing, and I think he ended up getting, like, him and some of his LARP friends got drunk one night and got arrested while they were in costume, and somehow that got twisted into, yeah, don't you see, you start off playing these... This Dungeons and Dragons, and before you know it, you think you're really an elf, and you're going out getting up to mischief. Uh, so I, I think that's how that, uh, <laughs> I think that's what, like, made that stupid myth, like, concrete in my family. Yeah, and that was just sort of, one of my friends was just running sort of pre-made campaigns out of a book. And uh, we didn't do it that much, but it was fun. And uh, eventually, sometime around high school started doing it uh, with a different group of friends where he was trying to come up with his own campaign and stuff. And a lot of my like RPG experience stuff was actually online stuff with like play by post games on web forums. I have a friend, uh, Malachi Charlo, who I should, if I'm going to mention him, I should probably look up what his website is because he has a lot of like games that he has created over time that he sort of, used us to playtest, and of course, I've said that, and now I can't actually find his website, because I don't have it handy. Sorry, Malachi! But, uh, yeah, he kinda would run play-by-post games, the sort of systems that he, uh, invented from scratch, and then he would kinda use those games to sort of refine them, and, uh, like I said, as of, like, a year or two ago, he actually started selling a few online. Do you remember your very first character? Oh, gosh, I don't at all because it was very much like i said it was kind of doing pre-made campaigns out of the book i think it was probably pre-made characters out of the book the first character i really remember having a strong affinity to and you know this about me uh is that uh i have the screen name speed racer everywhere because uh i saw the film speed racer and um i really liked that movie and uh, these games that my friend Malachi were doing uh, started up right around the time that I saw that movie. So I basically made a fantasy version of Speed Racer, who was a very fast horse rider. And that version of him, like that character was very much like kind of a cocky jerk character. Sort of knew better than everyone else, even though he kind of sucked at everything. And uh, generally just got the whole party into a lot of trouble and uh i used him across like three or four campaigns for probably like five years and built him out into way more of a character than uh just a rip off of speed racer probably should be 
who would you say has been your favorite character? I, I think it would probably have to be uh, Speed, just because I played him for so long and he had such like a long history because uh, as he was running games, he made it sort of this multiverse thing where it's like, okay, we're done playing this fantasy game, but uh, whatever, you know, big god monster you fought at the end uh, has turned the world into a sci-fi world. So now you're all sci-fi versions of your characters and now you've, you're all dead. So now you're in like the multiverse afterlife and you're sort of the soul version of your characters. So there was like a continuity to that character probably across six or seven years that I played him. So he has a lot of uh, memories for me. When did you make the transition into GMing? Uh, so that was actually the same uh, play by post situation where Malachi needed to take a break. And I decided to go ahead and jump in with a game idea. I had kind of been messing with in my head for a long time. Uh, which was sort of a, it's kind of a, uh, Eric, is this, is this a PG podcast? I don't know if I should cuss or not. I'm going to ask you what your favorite curse word is to hear from your players. So go for it. All right, cool. Uh, it was kind of a, uh, clusterfuck of a setting where it was sort of a post-apocalypse where because it was a post-apocalypse and people were rebuilding technology, it had just kind of coincidentally turned into like a steampunk thing. And uh, it was all sort of nautical pirate themed. I ran that game for maybe two years and it really was just a big mess. <laughs> but fun? I I had fun with it. I think some of my players might disagree. Well, some of them, I hope, had fun with it. Some of them came back for later games I ran, so they must have enjoyed it a little. What was the biggest lesson you learned from that game? Uh, I think the biggest lesson I learned from that is... uh, I am someone that has a lot of fun when stuff goes really wrong in games. And uh, if... You know, this was a system that had a percentile dice situation, so you could fail your roll by, you know, dozens of numbers. So to me, that requires some really high-grade failure. And uh, it turns out that people maybe don't have a lot of fun if you are really brutal and mean to their characters. Um, And from my perspective, I'm thinking it's fine because I know that it's all going to balance out in the end and I'm going to reward them in equal measure eventually. But when people are losing eyes and arms and that sort of thing, uh, they tend to get frustrated, it turns out. So uh, as I've run more games over time, I've kind of tried to become a more uh, forgiving uh, GM. So you are currently running a game right now? Yeah, we just started it with uh, a whole bunch of audio entropy people. Uh, just had our first session about a week ago. How'd that go? Uh, it went pretty well. It's something where, uh, and I think we're going to be getting more into like the setting and world building in a in a minute here. But uh, the setting is specifically like a city environment, which sort of a kind of erases the possibility of doing kind of your traditional dungeoneering type challenges there's not going to be any like spike pits in the middle of a city block or something uh and b also means that there's hypothetically a lot of different possibilities 
for what the players could choose to do. Um, because any kind of constraint on where they can go would be really artificial. So I had to do a lot of pre-planning uh, to get it ready and sort of built a very, like, horizontal set of campaign notes because they could go anywhere and do anything. And inevitably, they're going to do something you don't expect. So it was a little tricky trying to, you know, do all that pre-planning. And then, again, of course, they do something you didn't account for, even in spite of all that planning. So then you have to sort of take ideas that are now irrelevant because they didn't go this way and try and, like, fold them back into the way they are going so that you have enough material for the whole session. But, I mean, overall, uh, I I think it went really well. And I think they enjoyed it. Are you the type of GM that likes to prepare cutscenes, as it were? Or do you prefer to go off the cuff? I have definitely done like, cutscene-type stuff before. Usually with that sort of thing, I will... If I have, like, the idea for a scene involving, like, you know, NPCs or something that's important, I will try to make that something I write in my own time and maybe share with the players not in the middle of a session. Because while you're in a session, you know, getting four or five people together is difficult, and I want to make sure we're getting as much use out of that time as possible. So a lot of times what I'll do, and I've done this with I think every game I've done is I will use that sort of thing to kind of paint in corners of the world instead of having it be directly related to them. Like I will say, okay, meanwhile, this NPC that you bumped into after you left them, here's a scene that I wrote that this is what they're doing and it has implications for what you're doing and maybe do one or two of those in between sessions. But let's get more into this setting. Okay. Planning on keeping it just the city for now? Yeah, I think so. Um, So, (laughs) getting into a little bit about what this game actually is, just to explain better. Um, Doing some games with some other friends. I, uh, I tend to not take RPGs maybe as seriously as some people do. And that can be a little frustrating for some people. Like, I'm very... Uh, jokey, I guess would be the way to put it. And uh, at some point, because I wanted a way to kind of funnel all of that um, more humorous energy somewhere, I decided to start thinking up a game that was sort of built on that sort of um, attitude. So uh, years ago now, I came up with uh, a game where the party works for a fantasy pizza parlor and has to go deliver pizzas around some kind of fantasy city. Uh, Just because that's a real goofy idea. There's no like higher stakes than that. When I was sort of brainstorming that idea, I definitely had ideas. Well, obviously you'll have to do deliveries in the city. um, But because it's a fantasy setting, there can also be things like we uh, need like some kind of magic tomatoes for this tomato sauce. So you have to go on some stupid adventure out into the world to find that. And that sort of thing. So I definitely have ideas and plans for where they could go outside of the city. But then as I've sort of done all of this uh, pre-planning and uh, setting development stuff, I've come up with enough ideas for the city that I kind of do want to stay zoomed in on that location, at least for the time being. What's the city's name? Uh, The city's name is Nethria. I just sort of um, posted in our Slack chat, uh, I need to 
fantasy name for a city quick, and I just took the first name somebody gave me, because I'm terrible at naming things. Comparing it to a real-world city, about mm. how large would you say it is? Uh, it's pretty big, and I am not great at scale, but the idea is that uh, it is a... So the idea of this setting is that it's a very like dangerous place full of all kinds of fantasy monsters and stuff, but this is sort of a bastion of civilization where um, there's like a magical sort of demigoddess that lives at the top of this mountain, and over time people have settled around this mountain and have terraced it out, so it's almost like this giant wedding cake where each layer is a different uh, part of this city. So, yeah, if you just imagine sort of a mid-sized mountain uh, in the real world that just had an entire city kind of built all over its slopes, that would about be the, the scale of it, and again, I'm, I'm terrible at gauging sizes of things, so more specificity than that is kind of beyond me. What about population? Uh... Like, are you thinking a cramped? Yeah, oh yeah, population? it's definitely a cramped population. Um, you know, while coming up with this, because of that idea of sort of that terraced design, um, that kind of inherently leads it lends itself to interpreting the city as kind of having these class tiers on each terrace, um, which is sort of where I went with it. So, in my imagining, kind of the lower levels of the mountain are very cramped and sort of. Um, you know, slums and lots of very tightly packed apartments and that sort of thing. And then as you go up, it'd probably be, even though there's less physical space, there's also less uh, people proportionately. So it gets a lot more uh, loose and free. And what kind of fantasy races do you have in mind for the city? So I get really bored with how a lot of fantasy stuff um, kind of just takes everything from Tolkien and calls that a day. Uh, especially because I don't especially like uh, Tolkien's books. Um, so I've left it really open-ended where basically any kind of creature can live in this city or in this world. Um, as of right now, we have a lot of like animal people. One of the players is playing like a hyena person. Um, we have another person that's playing like a water elemental. Someone else is playing a civilized bugbear. Um, basically, if it's something sort of fantastical, it lives in this world, and it might live in this city if it's, uh, you know, sort of a more civilized kind of creature. The way you have the tier system set up, is mm -hmm. that purely based on uh, their wealth? Uh, I would say largely, if not entirely based on their wealth, yeah. Is wealth tied into certain races... Or is it everyone's free to make a living kind of thing? Uh, I definitely have not conceived of it as being a racial thing. Generally, I try not to reflect like real world problems like that in settings that I make, just because for me, it's something that's supposed to be kind of fun and escapist and silly. And there's definitely a place for kind of trying to explore those sorts of issues in um, fantasy settings or even in, like, a tabletop game. It's just not something that, A, I think I'd be all that good at doing, and B, I'm, I'm not especially interested in. So, yeah, for me, it's, it's kind of purely wealth-based, and there could be all sorts of reasons why you might uh, 
be wealthier than someone else. And there's not necessarily a strong correlation with, uh, like racial, um, like with race and wealth. Have you put much thought into how the city functions in terms of government? Uh, yeah, I have actually. Um, so they said this, uh, demigoddess that lives on top of this mountain can use her magic to kind of protect the city from everything outside of it. And she is ostensibly the city's queen. She rules over it, but um, that's, you know, a very high-level position, and it's more of a figurehead. There's sort of a council that uh, has members from probably every district or every tier of the city that uh, probably this is, this is me. Like I have rough ideas and that because you've asked me about it now, I'm trying to fill in details here. You know, there's probably, I don't know, 12, 13 people uh, like that, that sort of um, democratically decide on policy that then gets carried out by the rest of the city. For the group of players or employees, I guess. Sure. Are they all working at the same time, or are they split up into different shifts, and they just happen to be friends? Uh, they're all working uh, the same shift, and yeah, for the most part, eh, friends might be <laughs> a little much for a lot of them, but they they get along enough to work together. If it was a situation where some of my players couldn't meet at a different time, uh, at the same time as everybody else, I might try to come up with some shift-based thing to uh, split people into multiple groups, but as long as they can all meet at the same time, I'm not going to unnecessarily split them like that. What's the pizza place's name? Uh, it is Zazazir's Pizza, uh, which is named after Zazazir, the time wizard, who is the, the owner of the restaurant. Do they have a competing restaurant? Oh, man, they should. Uh, <laughs> that is not a, a quality I had thought of yet, but no, they absolutely should have that. And why did Zazazir decide to make a pizza place? So, he is kind of a crotchety old man, uh, and I, like the system we're using is Fate Core, which uh, part of when you're building a character, you give them a set of aspects that are sort of just character traits, and when those traits are relevant, you can, you know, get a bonus to your roles and that sort of thing. And uh, I gave him the aspect Mysterious Past because I'm not totally sure yet what happened that led to someone with, like, time magic uh, running a pizza place. And it might end up that he is sort of integral to the story that we end up telling, or he's just kind of some weirdo that, uh, you know, maybe he's got his own dumb story that we're not going to bother looking at. But, uh, yeah, it's something that, for now at least, I'm sort of leaving intentionally ambiguous. So far, what is the best bit of background that the players have filled in for you? Before we started, just kind of for fun, I posted a, like, creation myth story about this world, about um, two goddesses and one of them accidentally killed the other, and then the dead goddess's body turned into the world, and the living one looked over it. And uh, that was sort of the furthest I had thought out the um, mythology of this universe. But then one of my players wanted to be a cleric, and they thought 
that they should have a goddess that is more specific to healing magic. So um, the two goddesses in the story I wrote were called Truth and Beauty, just because I thought that was a neat idea. And he wanted his character to worship the goddess Health, which at that point, if you have, like, if, if at the top level you have Truth and Beauty, and then somewhere along the line you have Health, that to me implies this very big pantheon. Um, so from him, like, asking about that and making that suggestion, it sort of has really expanded my view of, like, the religious practices of the people in this world and a lot of my ideas about the mythology of the setting, which then have fed back into my sort of long-term plans for the campaign. I don't want to get into too many spoilers in case sure. they're listening. Uh, we can always tell them to turn it off. <laughs> That's true. How far down in terms of what a god would represent would you be willing to go and still have them considered a god? So the way I thought about it is that if the top level god is truth, uh, then it should be kind of every tier below that should be, you know, slightly less of a high level concept. And because um, in a lot of like real world history and mythology and, and uh, mysticism and stuff, you have a lot of like numerology and ideas of like divinity tied to specific numbers. I thought you should something about the progression of that pantheon should be should have some kind of numerical curiosity to it, I guess. Um, so I decided that there would be every tier would be the next um, would be the square of the next integer. So you have one god at the top, and then four gods below her, and then uh, nine gods below her, and sixteen. And I just kind of kept going until I thought I had a big enough number, which is uh, fifty five, which would be like one plus four plus nine plus sixteen plus twenty five. And then I thought also, and uh, you know what? This isn't even a major spoiler, but. I don't care. Mike, Ashley, Molly, Julie, Dustin, stop listening if you're listening. <laughs> um, uh, I decided that that's really interesting, but also there should be some kind of devil figure in this mythology, too. So you should have one extra that breaks the pattern. So there's 56 total. And um, so that that last tier, that 25, is uh, a lot of sort of more basic concepts and more... Um, uh, like less high-minded concepts, like some of the ones I've come up with for that are like fame and fortune, um, things that you know are maybe not something that you would consider deity-like, uh, that you would worship normally. Do the tears of the city also correspond to the tears of the gods? Uh, where oh, the good. higher classes can. Mm -hmm spend time thinking about higher ideals, whereas right, the right. lower classes have more day-to-day -day concerns. That is a very interesting idea that I had not considered, and I, th I definitely will now, though. <laughs> so you said the city is looked over by a demigoddess. Does yeah. that mean that the gods walk the earth, or is this a self-proclaimed title? Uh... So, yeah, I already told them to stop listening, so let's just get into it. Uh, <laughs> I decided, only one of my players decided to make a human character. Um, so, to me, that implied that human is kind of a rare 
species in this world. So I made the decision that humans in this world are descended from gods uh, in a way similar to like characters from Greek myth, like, you know, um, Hercules and that or uh, Perseus or is per- I don't know if Perseus is. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> My knowledge is based on Kevin Sorbo, so. Okay, yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, you have a lot of stories about people who had, like, a mortal parent and a, a godparent. I decided that, that would be where human beings came from, from this. So, most human beings are far enough descended from the gods that they don't necessarily have any kind of special powers. They might be a little stronger or a little faster or a little st- smarter than average, but nothing amazing. The queen of this city is someone who is a direct descendant of one of the gods. So she still has, like, a lot of magical power as a result of that. Have you thought of which god? Um. To be determined? Yeah, to be determined. Uh, I still, so I came with that number 55, and I have maybe 10 of them thought up. And part of me is hesitant to try and fill in all of them because I might want to leave some of that blank to discover through playing with, uh, you know, my players or let them come up with ideas for things. So it's something where other than a few things where I have concrete ideas of where to go, I don't have a lot of um, completely fleshed out stuff for that pantheon. And like I said, I'm sort of conflicted on whether or not to fully flesh it out on my own. Going back to the city and the different tiers, mm-hmm. is there going to be an overarching police force for each tier? So, in our first campaign, we talked about uh, some guards, and uh, that definitely would imply some kind of policing force. Um, I think in my conception of it, it's just that you have sort of a... Uh, a city guard that sort of patrols the streets and makes sure that things are going okay. And, uh, like you'd probably expect from, you know, something that is this stratified, you probably have much, uh, better police in the higher tiers protecting the rich than you do protecting the poor at the bottom. How about underworld connections? So, (laughs) I had, uh... One of those ideas for our first session that I had to throw away was um, I had sort of given them a misdirect on where they were supposed to go to deliver their first pizza. And uh, the idea was going to be um, that when they got there, so let me back up for a second, I guess. Uh, Because I've introduced this idea of like pizza delivery as a thing in this city, it seemed like you would need some kind of long-range communication for that to make much sense. Uh, so I came up with the idea for um, communion stones, which would be like big rock slabs that basically function like telephones. And, uh, you know, in my sort of original setting write-up I talked about, you can they're connected to each other with ley lines, the way that a phone might be connected with uh, telephone lines. So... The idea was going to be that they were going to get to this wrong address and there was going to be a public communion stone, basically a payphone that was um, basically ringing 
And if they had answered it, that would have been a um, part of some kind of criminal unseemliness that uh, they were then going to end up getting dragged into. And um, I haven't done a ton of, like, fleshing out of that idea, especially now that it's not immediately relevant to them. But, uh, yeah, the idea was that they were going to kind of get sucked into some sort of thing like that. And then um, the other element of that, as far as uh, Underworld goes, is uh, one of my players decided as part of her character story that she is the champion of an underground fighting league. Which I probably would have, you know, dovetailed those two plot points together had it come up. Do you have little plot things that you're squirreling away for a big reveal right now? Uh, yeah, definitely. So when I'm sort of planning a long-term game, I don't like making a lot of plans set in stone, because I've done that before, and it, for me, at the very least, it inevitably means I end up railroading players, because I've basically written the story already, and now I just need them to act out the script in my brain, and I don't want that, because that's really not fun for anybody. But I definitely have moments and ideas for uh, confrontations or um, just character moments that I want to expose them to. Like I mentioned that two gods I've come up with are fame and fortune. And both of them I have pretty silly ideas for. And like I said, I already told them to stop listening. If you're still listening, go away, everybody. <laughs> I mean, you only have yourself to blame at this point. I only have myself to blame at this point. I am going to be very cross at them if they continue listening, though. Uh, the idea was going to be all of these different goddesses have their own, like, mini religions and churches that worship them. So I decided that Fortune's Church, she should actually show up to and basically give a seminar, almost like she is a high-ranking member of... Um, like Mary Kay or something, you know, with sort of the headset and giving a speech about how you can quit your day job to sell some dumb pyramid scheme product, just because I thought that'd be funny. And then Fames would, in my mind, Fame is just Hatsune Miku, and she's just going to put on a concert at her church every week, which I think will be pretty entertaining when they get to. Going back to that public communion stone... Mm -hmm. It sounds like there are shades of modern technology, although I guess at this point, public phones aren't really <laughs> yeah, modern yeah. technology. But how do you envision the world in terms of technology versus magic? I imagine it mostly being uh, magical technology, I guess. And basically, anytime there is a story conceit, that I need that would sort of rely on a modern piece of technology, I try to come up with a sort of magical analog to that. So, yeah, like the communion stones are a good example of that. Or, um, yeah, they went into a mine shaft in their first session and uh, they wanted to turn on the lights and they want to know if there's maybe some electric lighting or anything. And I didn't want to make it that much like the real world. So what I went with instead, just kind of thinking on the fly, we had already established that the thing that makes, that sort of protects this city, the way that this demigoddess uh, uses her magic is that there is a like magic well in her castle 
that sort of pours this magical, like, kaleidoscopic water down a stream from the mountain that sort of pours all through these canals, all through the city, and then pools at the bottom, and, like, monsters can't be near that magic water. So to light up this mine shaft, I had them find a hand pump near the entrance that would pump up some of this magic water that sort of glows in the dark, and then fill through these trenches that run all along the mine shaft to light everything up. So, yeah, generally I... I don't want us to feel like, ah, we can't do this moment or this story because this technology wouldn't exist. But I don't want to just stick technology in there, like, weirdly and sort of log, just cram it in there. Um, so I'll usually try to think of something sort of fantastical that works as an analog. Are there technologies that are specific to gods? There probably are. <laughs> That's about the most I could say at this point. Are the communion stones powered by prayers to the god of messaging? So, uh, <laughs> I like that idea. Uh, that that might be something that becomes retroactively true. Uh, my thinking. You uh, you have to insert. You insert a slot or a coin into a slot. As tithing to the god. Right. <laughs> oh, I do like that idea. My thinking for it was that this works because of um, this magic water everywhere, and the ley lines are actually just um, sort of magic can be transmitted across these streams and canals. But I don't know. Your idea is pretty good. I might have to steal it. Okay, I'm just going to put this name out there. <laughs> uh huh. They get nicknamed as. Pay stones. Okay, all right. Instead of pay phones. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Son of a bitch. <laughs> what kind of mobility is there just every day between the different tiers? As of right now, it's all just on foot. Um, it has not come up yet, but I assume horses and carts are a thing. Um, I think at some point we discussed the possibility of there maybe being um, some sort of, like, mass teleportation thing that acts as public transit. But if that is a hard detail of the setting, that is not something that's actually come up yet. Like I mentioned sort of at the top of this, uh, designing interesting puzzles or just interesting challenges even to overcome in a city environment is a little tricky. Um, and part of how I've been trying to do that so far is introducing just sort of the obstacles of navigating an urban environment. And, uh, like, one of my players made a character that's very good at parkour, which uh, ties right into that. But because of that, I'm a little hesitant at the moment, at least, to give them much in the way of um, modes of transportation other than just their own God-given feet. Are people free to move? Between the tiers? To a point. So, because this place is so much safer than uh, the rest of the world, you have a lot of people sort of emigrating to here. And uh, the bottom tier of the city, which uh, I have them color-coded just sort of according to the colors of the rainbow. So the base of the city is red, and that's sort of farmland. It's not really the city proper. Uh, but then right above that, you have the orange tier. 
and that is sort of where people that are new to the city come at first. It's very, in my mind, it's all, half of it is like dark alleys where you'd get mugged, and half of it is like buildings that like Fievel lived in in an American tale. <laughs> um, Godfather 2. Right, yeah, very Godfather 2, that sort of thing. Uh, and moving up from there into higher tiers of the city is difficult. You kind of have to earn citizenship and get sort of approval to move up into higher tiers of the city. And there's probably some bureaucratic corruption trying to keep, you know, the wrong sorts of people from coming up. Beyond that, once you get in sort of the, the yellow, green, and blue, that's much more just a matter of what kind of housing can you afford. Blue being the top? Uh, so, indigo would be the top, uh, or, and then above that is, what, violet, which is sort of just the, the queen's palace. Um, but indigo would be very much, like, luxurious mansions and, uh, country clubs and that sort of thing. And, uh, indigo would be more, or, uh, did I just say, I'm sorry, uh, blue would be more just sort of high-level housing. Would somebody from the indigo tier ever call for a pizza from Zaza's ears? Uh, they might. <laughs> that might happen. <laughs> Seems you like it'd know. be interesting for the pizza delivery people to try to get into that tier. Right, yeah, because they are... It, the whole, like, I want to call them cast, but my players are very uh, Scott Pilgrim-esque. They're all kind of do-nothing 20-somethings, which is exactly what I wanted them to do, and I'm very glad that it didn't take much prodding for me to build that kind of uh, party. So yeah, they would not necessarily fit in in uh, the Indigo tier. Have you given much thought to the creatures outside the city? Not a ton. I, um... Oh god, I wonder if I have those notes handy, because I did have... One of the scenes I ended up having to scrap was them running through the orange tier in this first session. I might still try and work it in somehow, where um, a whale person was sort of uh, causing a scene in the middle of the streets. And being a whale person, they're big enough to kind of cause a one-man riot about um, being stuck in the orange tier. And uh, they had to move away from their city because of a monster that had attacked sort of their coastal settlement. And I had, I ended up like just sort of looking up different kinds of nautical monsters. And I had found one that I liked, but I'm probably not going to be able to find it in the middle of all this stuff. Uh, but it's like a story from, I think it started in the Bible and then like Tolkien wrote a poem about it. And it's got some crazy eight-syllable name. It's like half whale, half turtle. I'm like, okay, that's a cool monster that I have never actually seen in a thing. So uh, I'm definitely going to use that. Half whale, half gorilla would be Godzilla. That's true. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, generally with like fantasy monsters and stuff, it kind of goes back to the same thing where I don't necessarily love doing just... um elves and dwarves and in the same way I don't want to just do like orcs and kobolds like I generally want to do sort of weirder stuff that you haven't seen before or have not seen that often at the very least 
and it, that either means sort of digging through more obscure bits of like fantasy for inspiration or just coming up with weird stuff on my own, like for a few uh, monsters that have not come up in the campaign yet, but will be soon. I like look to the uh, Jabberwocky poem from Through the Looking Glass and some of the weird monsters that he sort of describes in there. I'm like, okay, yeah, th- they'll fight some bandersnatches and jubjib birds. Yeah, definitely. Just going back to the shape of the city real quick. Mm-hmm. Is it just a single mountain or is it a mountain range? Uh, it's just a single mountain. And uh, when I was doing some research looking up, because uh, I wanted to try and figure out how big this city would be. And it kind of occurred to me, there's really, in real life, not really such a thing as one single mountain. They're all kind of part of at least a small mountain range, but oh well, this is just one mountain. And is it built around completely, or are there certain areas of the mountain that cannot be built on? Uh, No, it is completely built around. At this point, it looks less like a mountain than it does a giant wedding cake. At night, are there... Maybe not electric torches, but Mm -hmm. normal street lights. The magic water that I talked about, there are canals running all through the city. And even in like in the middle of a street, there might be a small sort of almost like a drainage ditch in the middle of the the, uh, street acting as like a divider that has water running through it. And that glows in the dark. And that's where the tiers get their color names because it glows a different color at each tier. And uh, that kind of provides all the lighting that you need. So somebody's eyes at the top of the mountain would be adjusted to the dark differently than someone at the bottom? Uh, yeah, I guess it would, wouldn't it? Just based on the the color of the lighting. What would be the, within each tier, considered primo real estate? The red tier, I think that is all, like I said, it's it's basically all farmland. And uh, I think that is probably... Land that is um, passed down between families, or else if some land frees up, it is explicitly sort of uh, granted to people that can, you know, manage those farms, because it's such an important part of the city's infrastructure to have a reliable food source. So I think any land there is pretty premium. And the red tier at the bottom actually almost sort of breaks the idea of it being a uh, stratified system where higher is better, because it's probably you know, a more desirable place to live than orange and maybe even yellow. For the orange tier, I think it's sort of similar in that any place you can get that, like, has four walls and a door, you're good to go. Um, because that's it's so crowded and it's so hard to come by good housing down there. For yellow, I think there are probably good housing and bad housing, and it's just kind of... You're you're lucky to find something good, but you want to, uh, you know, it's it's there's not like an area where okay, that's that's the good place. It's the sort of thing where you might discover a nice apartment that no one's found that is in some weird corner, you know, back alley. Would you want to be near the water, or would you want to be further away from it? I don't think it's really optional to be further away from the water. It's kind of everywhere. So they don't have to worry about light pollution when they're trying to sleep, because they'd just be used to it at this point. I would think so, yeah, yeah. But then once you get into, like, green, that's almost sort of suburban looking. There's definitely probably more apartment-y kind of housing, but 
there are areas of it that would be more like small suburbs, and I would imagine those would be more preferable. And then um, blue tier, I almost imagine sort of like Manhattan, where you'd have a lot of expensive sort of penthouse type apartments. Not necessarily the same kind of, you know, skyscraper high rises, um, because I'm not trying to get that like high tech with it. But um, you definitely have like sort of luxury apartments there. And then I said Violet is just mansions and country clubs. So anywhere there is going to be premium. If you had to give a general time period relative to our own world, mm-hmm. would you say they're in like a industrial revolution? I would say they're probably in some kind of mishmash of like between the industrial revolution and um, like the Renaissance. Like I think in a more traditional sense of thinking of it they're more towards renaissance era but because they have so much weird magic that they can build things out of um they have a lot of advancements that you wouldn't have at that point in the real world so they have like bits and pieces that are like i said more like 19th century or maybe maybe even early 20th century but like sort of culturally and especially if you're getting away from areas that have a lot of uh, magical um, resources, they would be looking more like 1500s, 1600s. So the indigo tier, mm-hmm. they would be the wealthiest and have the most space individually, except for the red tier, perhaps. Right. What are they most jealous of? What are the indigo most jealous of? Yes. Hmm. Huh. I think at that point, they are probably primarily most jealous of each other. I think that is sort of a ruling class. And um, because they're so close to the top, suddenly, you know, kind of behind the scenes, there is a lot of uh, bickering and political machinations to try and get that extra quarter inch over everybody else there. Um, Because when you're defining your whole life as I'm above everybody, except for my neighbors, then you want to be able to find a way to say, to include your neighbors in that group of people that you're above. What would you say the orange tier is most proud of? Uh, I think the orange tier has a very strong uh, workers ethic. You know, there are a lot of manual labor laborers. So I think they would have a lot of the same sort of pride that, you know, blue collar people do in real life, you know, a lot of pride in the work that they do and the lives that they've managed to establish and the families that they've raised. And what is the red tier most afraid of? Because the red tier is almost not even in the city proper, they are sort of bordering the frontier where there's a lot of danger. So they're definitely afraid of that. And sort of related to that, they're probably a little afraid of the city because they are so dependent on it. Because if something happened where their magical protection fell away, their entire way of life would be gone. What would it take for that magical protection to fall away? Hmm. It would be difficult to know for sure, but... uh their sort of demigoddess queen seems like she's immortal, and it's not necessarily clear 
I mean, I know the answer to this, but uh, it's not necessarily clear if she is using her magic to protect the city or if that well of magical water is doing the job all on its own and they don't need her or not. It might be if that well ever ran dry or if the queen died uh, or maybe they're linked and both would happen. You know, one would cause the other. That would definitely be, you know, that would take that protection away. And uh, I said, so far, it seems like she's immortal. And so far, it seems like that well can't run dry. But who knows? With having one of your players being a cleric, are there strong cleric orders throughout the different tiers? Um, Or is it a more personal connection to a given deity? Yeah, so like I said, when they sort of came up with that idea, it definitely added this whole element of religion to this setting that I hadn't really thought of before. So um, I definitely picture it as you have lots of churches all over the place, and they all um, worship these different goddesses. I sort of imagine it working kind of like, not exactly, but similar to like saints in Catholicism, which you don't explicitly worship saints, but... um. You know, you pray to them and, or pray to God, you know, have them, uh, I'm not Catholic, so I only know it a little bit, uh, but my understanding is you basically pray to them to pray to God on behalf of you. So that's not quite the same, but it's the same in that you have patron saints of different things, and if you are a certain type of person, you might look towards the patron saint that covers what you're praying about. And I think it works in a similar way with this huge pantheon of gods. If you decided to go with the different tiers tending to focus on different tiers of gods, Mm -hmm. how do you think people within that tier would react if somebody was praying outside their tier, if you will? Hmm. The way I'm thinking about it, because it's not necessarily like a a different religion. Like, it's not even like a Catholic versus Protestant thing. It is all the same pantheon. Um, So I think that you might be regarded with a little bit of suspicion or sort of like, what, what, why are you doing that? What's wrong with you? But I don't think there would necessarily be, like, aggression or violence towards that idea. It would just be odd, and people would treat you oddly. You know, if you're praying to a a god that's traditionally worshipped by someone at a high tier, and you are a low-class person, people would think, you know, you're trying to be... uh, It'd be the equivalent of, like, wearing a suit to your job at Wendy's or something, you know? Well, I was complimented. Thank you very much. (laughs) So with the gods being a bit more tangible in this setting... Mm -hmm. Is there less of a chance for dogmatic differences between followers? I would say so. And I think that, um, like I said, this is all very much stuff that is evolving, partially as you're asking me these questions. I'm almost thinking of it sort of in terms of, like, sports teams. Like, you would definitely root for your god more, um, but it wouldn't. There's not, like you said, there's not a ton of room for strong dogmatic differences. Um, something that my players suggested that I still need to figure out a way to work in, because I like the idea, is that you would have some people who worship the dead god, 
that their world is made out of, who sort of uh, despise the traditional pantheon of gods because they are living high off of the death of their god, and as a result would have some friction with uh, uh, the followers of those gods. But that's not something that I've put a ton of development time into yet, just because my player sort of floated that idea at me. I'm like, ooh, that's interesting. I'm going to have to think of that. What has been the biggest curveball they've thrown to you so far? Mm, well, <laughs> uh, so there are sort of two with that. The first one, the uh, the first thing that we did when we started our first session was I wanted to kind of make something exciting to kick things off with. So I had them sort of jump in in medias res where uh, some pizza at the pizza parlor, something happened to transform it into a giant pizza monster. And uh, one of my players decided to try and eat it as a way to beat it. And he rolled really, really well. And that was a silly enough solution to the problem that I had a hard time arguing with it, even though it didn't make that much sense. Uh, that was, I think that was the most fun curveball. Um, the other one was I mentioned uh, that I had sent them, I, I was trying to trick them into going to the wrong address. And what I had done was I had actually handwritten out the note with the address on it. And uh, I spent a long time looking at words that would say something different if you rotated them upside down. And I finally found something that, like, okay, this looks like one address if you write if you look at it this way, but if you rotate it, it's a different address. This is perfect. And uh, I handed it to them, and they immediately understood that they were supposed to flip it over. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Is this the type of world that you would want to remain insular when it comes to the world building? Mm -hmm. Or is it the kind where you would take inspiration from all over? For example, if in the Discord people were wanting to come up with ideas for the game. My approach with this stuff is usually I come up with sort of basic ideas and then I like to let my players sort of come up with stuff and then I incorporate that in and build more fiction out of that. But if people outside of that group had ideas, I would definitely listen to them. Um, you've definitely given me some good ones during this talk. So yeah, definitely. Are there any plans for a resource where people could learn about the setting as it evolves? Oh gosh. Uh, well, about the only resource at this point that I have is a Google Doc that I'm sort of just keeping for my own purposes, but I can definitely uh, provide you the sharing link to that if you would want to share that with people. It's a private game. Sure. But it is the kind of setting that people would want to pitch in and... How would you feel if people decided they wanted to run a fan game in that setting? Uh, I would be kind of blown away by that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. If uh, someone thought that just these ideas that uh, I kind of rattled off and then just sort of riffed on with a group of friends was interesting enough that they wanted to take it and run with it in their own direction. Yeah, that'd be really cool. If you could have one piece of fan art, what would it be? Oh, man. Um, boy, oh, boy. 
I gotta think hard about this because I only get one shot at it. Um, I think the thing I would like to see the most is uh, in that creation myth I talked about where um, one goddess accidentally killed another one. I wrote it from the perspective of like a kid just because I thought that'd be a cool way to do it. And I kind of made it ambiguous about whether or not uh, they were embellishing it or not. But their description of it was that these two sisters were doing backyard wrestling and uh, Truth suplexed Beauty's head so hard that it exploded into a bunch of magical rainbows that flowed out everywhere. And that's how everything got created. That moment would be an amazing thing to see someone visualize. I hope they like a challenge. <laughs> but I mean, if anyone wanted to do any fan art, I would, they'd be my new best friend. <laughs> We're going to start wrapping things up, but before we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the Pivo questionnaire pioneered by Bernal people. What is your favorite word? Ooh, um, I say fuck a lot, so that might just be it. <laughs> what is your least favorite word? Hmm, um, gosh, <laughs> let's go with cotton mouth. Any particular reason? Um, it was the first thing that jumped into my head when you asked that. I don't really like the the feel of my mouth when I say it, and snakes are no good. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Mm, um Huh. <laughs> that's that's a that's a big question. Um I think spiritually Anytime I, like, read a story or an experience or something that, to me, reflects a, like, moral truth that feels elevated from what people normally, like, conventional wisdom. And uh, I don't want to get super into religion talk all of a sudden out of the blue here, but um, I am a, a Christian and, like, that to me is what, like, gets me about that, is that everything, like, core to that theology is about flipping ways of thinking upside down, where um, the, the weak are strong and the poor are rich, and, uh, you know, forgiveness is the way to conquer enemies and all that stuff. And like I said, I don't want to get... <laughs> suddenly super deep on that level here but i think anything along those levels that like reflects a complete reversal of the way a person would normally think about something really excites me what turns you off the converse of that anything that just kind of either parrots an old idea or um reinforces someone's like basic uh impulses like this is a weird example to pull out of nowhere but uh 
being extremely hip to pop culture, I finally watched the first season of Daredevil uh, last week. And uh, the end of that show has this moment where the bad guy, you know, is like on the ground, like spitting blood out. And he goes, you think a man in a mask can make a difference? Aha! You know, like your normal superhero thing. And Daredevil's response is just to punch him in the face. And that was such a moment to be like, oh, well, this show sucks. Like, that's the moment to prove that you've made a difference and show him that his worldview is wrong and reinforce their belief in humanity. And said you just punched him real good. All right, well, this sucks. He made a difference. The guy's nose wasn't broken before he punched him. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? I think that this says a lot about me as a person. I get a lot of joy anytime I just get like, oh, God damn it, Luke. <laughs> Either because of a bad pun or a weird twist or uh, something bad happened. Now just wait until you whip out pay stones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I uh, That pizza monster had a... I wanted it to... Um, Offer them a way to beat it without just fighting it. So I thought it should have some some alternate way of, you know, defeating it. And I thought, well, it should have its crust somewhere deep inside it that they can destroy. And that'll destroy the, like, monster made of cheese and goop. And I called that its whore crust. And that got the exact reaction I wanted. I'm trying not to say goddammit right now. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Uh, a pen clicking. Because I'll just sit by myself and click a pen over and over forever, if you let me. What sound or noise do you hate? Nails on a chalkboard is such a like basic-ass answer. I do hate it, though. It's no good. Um, any kind of, like, screeching or squealing like that. I'm trying to think of a more original answer other than just, you know, unpleasant noises. Uh, but that's 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 all I'm coming up with. <laughs> The sound of somebody checking their phone during a game? Uh, nah, they can do that. (laughs) What game system would you like to attempt? So, this is my first time playing Fate Core, and me and my players are both kind of learning it together, and I'm liking it a lot so far. Dungeon World seems like another cool one that I'd want to give a try to. Uh, I almost did it for this, but I decided it was a little too... Uh, numbers heavy. We have some people that haven't done any role-playing before, so I wanted to kind of ease them into something with a really light, kind of more narrative-focused game, but I'd give Dungeon World a try sometime. What game system would you not like to attempt? Uh, I mean, again, like, (laughs) Fatal is too easy of an answer, right? Uh, I mean, it keeps popping up for a reason. (laughs) Is that what people say on here a lot? (laughs) Anything that is Super, uh, like, or almost entirely numbers heavy. I don't have any real interest in, like, you know, D and D. Um, it's just they're fine, and there's totally a lot of fun you can have with them. But to me, systems that have stuff like Dungeon World's Bond system, or you know, the aspects of um, Fate Core, just encourage role playing and collaborative storytelling in a way that that's what I want out of it. So anything that's just okay determine your dexterity and your will. I just, I don't care. (laughs) And when this game concludes, what would you like to hear from your players? 
uh, that I did a good job, and they they love me, and I'm their favorite person. <laughs> no, um, no, I just want to hear that they had a good time. Well, I feel like most people listening to this will already know how to follow you, but where can the insiders learn more about you? Uh, yeah, they can follow me on Twitter at SSJ Speed Racer, um, and they can uh, check me out on AudioEntropy.com. Uh, the website where this podcast is, and uh, I'm on a whole bunch of shows there. I'm on Teenagers with Attitude regularly. Uh, I am a co-host on Totally Reprise, and those are both uh, rewatch podcasts. Uh, me and uh, Ashley Miner do a show called Cosmic Call, which is an improv science fiction talk show that I'm realizing gets harder and harder to explain the more we do it. <laughs> but uh, I think it's pretty funny, so maybe check it out. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. You can follow this show on Twitter at ITMS underscore podcast. If you liked letting Luke tell you about his campaign, you can also head to audioentropy.com to let him tell you about Evangelion, to let him tell you about Homestuck, and to let him tell you about the movie Speed Racer in Pris and Molly's Movie Night. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, it doesn't matter if GMing never changes. What matters is if we let GMing change us. Every one of us has to find a reason to do this. You don't sit behind a screen to drive the story. You do it because you're driven.